painful sex, peeing when you sneeze, heavy menstrual bleeding, hemorrhoids, these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crap women deal with after childbirth, surgery, or just living life as a woman. Yet no one talks about it. How can we live our best life as a woman, mom, partner, and athlete without having to settle for average sex or dirty pants? This is the question, and this podcast will dive into real answers. If you get offended easily, this is not the podcast for you. We get real, and sometimes real isn't pretty or proper. If you have young ones nearby, we suggest you put in headphones. We are Joss and Jenny, and welcome to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram, at the Vagina Doc and at Pelvic Boxer. DM us and we will personally answer your questions. For this episode and all future episodes, please keep in mind our disclaimer. The information on this podcast is intended as general information only and should not be substituted or used in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, in this episode, Jenny and I speak with Dr. Sarah St. Louis, urogynecologist in Orlando, Florida, about prolapse, surgery, and getting back to exercise after surgery. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Jenny. Hey, Jocelyn, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm good. So we're going to jump right in today. We are so lucky. Um, Our guest today is... uh, a very well-known surgeon, very unique in that she is very open to working with other healthcare providers. Um, I'm sure some of our listeners have heard her on other talks, but we are diving into a very specific topic. So we are going to be specifically speaking about prolapse repair surgeries and then what recovery looks like in terms of Um, physical therapy recovery, and from a medical perspective. So without further ado, uh, we have Dr. Uh, Sarah St. Louis on with us. So Dr. St. Louis, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners about yourself? Hi, everybody. Um, Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And just to tell you a bit about myself, again, my name is Sarah St. Louis. I'm a urogynecologist in private practice, solo private practice in Orlando, Florida. And um, my background is through um, Uh, I did a year of general surgery followed by OBGYN residency, followed by the additional three years of pelvic, um, female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, which is also known as urogynecology. So um, I have uh, an extensive background in women's health and also uh, reconstructive surgery. And I practice here in Orlando where I um, treat people with conservative behavioral, medical and surgical methods. Can I ask you how you got into this? How'd you choose your route? (laughs) So um, I went to an all-female college, and it was kind of at that point that I realized there was a lot about women's reproductive health that nobody really had any clue about, um, including people that are educated. So I was interested in women's health, went to medical school, and um, uh, decided on OBGYN. Um, and did that prelim intern year in general surgery, which was extremely helpful. And at that point, I knew I kind of was not so interested in the delivering babies part, but more so in the surgical part, and was uh, teeter-tottering between um, urology versus the OBGYN, went through OBGYN, and then decided to do 
the urogynecology. It just seemed like a perfect mix of women's health and surgery. So that's how I got here. I was, uh, so I, um, in my CrossFit gym, there's a variety of different people, several of which are students. One who she's going through, I believe she's in, uh, she's in internship. Okay. And she finished, I just go in and I'm dramatic and I'm like, Sally, why is there no, there are no urogynecologists that are females? And she laughed and she's like, it's pretty, it's relatively new and there's not that many women in medicine, let alone that kind of specialty. So uh, that brings me to my next question. Do you, are you, are there many other women that you know of that are urogynecologists? So I would say I know a lot, but that's because I am one. So <laughs> but in general, no, there's not a lot. Just like, I mean, I feel like you guys are a dime a dozen. Anyone that does, I mean, like there's very few, there's, there's not a lot of female uh, pelvic physical therapists. I, I feel like I'm constantly searching, trying to find them. And if anyone knows of one, I'm like, please tie me in with them. I need to talk with them. Um, but for instance, urogynecology, it's been around uh, surgeons have been doing it for decades. Yeah. Um, it just hasn't been a recognized subspecialty with its own um, uh, board examination. That just happened within the past 10 years. So we now have these um, fellowships that are accredited where people can be double board certified. So that's what's new. So now we have surgeons that are strictly devoted to urogynecology, whereas before we had general OBGYNs and general urologists that were kind of doing it. Now we have people that this is literally all they do and we have board certification. So with that being said, as far as the um, OBGYN fellowship training programs, at the time of my graduation, there was probably about 50 or 55 in the country programs and most graduate one or two a year. So yes, there's not many each year that are graduating. So let me ask you this. I do work with some or have worked with some gynecologists that do prolapse repair surgeries. I've also worked with urogynecologists. Um, perhaps I could get in trouble for saying this, but I typically see that the outcomes are very different. Um, and that's not to say that the gynecologists don't get good outcomes, but I tend to see better outcomes with urogynecologists. So what is the difference in training for a gynecologist versus a urogynecologist for performing these surgeries? Or why would maybe somebody choose to go to one doctor over another? Um, so the difference is in the fact that a general gynecologist, we have four years of training for OBGYN. We probably spend maybe three to four months doing urogynecology in that four years. So depending on your program, you might have a very strong urogynecology team and you may graduate being very comfortable, but a general OBGYN, because we now have urogynecologists, they're not doing as many urogyn cases in their practice. So a general OBGYN may do a couple of prolapse surgeries a year, whereas a urogynecologist is doing up to 10 urogynecology procedures a week. So the outcomes are gonna be different just, just due to sheer volume. Well, that would make a lot of sense from a therapy standpoint. Usually, if you need a specialized knee procedure, you're not just gonna go see somebody that kinda sees knees sometimes. You wanna find the person that's the best, that like they see the complex knees all the time. And I don't know why women would think 
that this type of surgery would be any different. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it depends on what patients are told because in all honesty, um, you know, anyone can tell you, you need a surgery and I can do it, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So, you know, we got to do our research and, you know, I could do an appendectomy, but I haven't done one in several years. So I'm not going to say that I, that's something I'm going to do for you. Um, but it just depends on, on each person. That makes me think of the, the first question related to the, the meat of today's, this, today's conversation. When would you decide, when do you make the determination to tell a patient that you recommend surgery or not? So um, I recommend surgery. I kind of let the patient tell me. Um, in my opinion, with urogynecology and with prolapse, there's rarely a situation where someone needs surgery. So it's really on the patient and their quality of life. If they are uncomfortable and it's affecting their quality of life and what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, that's usually when surgery is necessary. If another modality cannot manage their symptoms yeah. and help yeah. them get a better quality of life. So it's once they've kind of exhausted all options and once they are, they're, they're really affected, I mean, I have patients that have prolapse that's, you know, stage three, stage four, and they say it doesn't affect them at all. I am not going to offer surgery. I just am not going to, unless there's a medical condition um, that really needs to be treated, like, you know, urinary retention that's now causing upper tract kidney disease. Then I'll say, you know what, I know this isn't bothering you, but it's affecting your health. But in general, if it's not bothering them, I'm not going to bother it. Should we, Jenny, should we talk a little bit about what prolapse is and the staging or the grading system? I know we've, we, we've talked about it in the past, but maybe it would be good, a good refresher. So uh, what do you think? Yeah, so Dr. St. Louis, I'd really love for you to touch on for our listeners how you assess prolapse, what prolapse is, the different types of prolapse, and then when you assess, what does that information mean to you? So as far as um, what is prolapse, prolapse um, in simple terms is a hernia. Um, it's a hernia through uh, the pelvic floor. So just like an umbilical hernia, if you have a weakening of the fascia or the supportive tissue, your organs behind that area or defect are going to bulge through. So the same thing with a prolapse. When we're talking about pelvic organ prolapse, there's multiple organs that can prolapse through the vagina depending on where the defects lie. So the bladder can prolapse or herniate or bulge into the vagina. The top part of the vagina or the uterus and cervix, if it's still in place, can prolapse. The rectum can prolapse and so can the small bowel. So these have different terms. Bladder prolapse is called cystocele. The uterus and cervix coming down is called uterovaginal prolapse. If the uterus has been removed, it's usually referred to as vaginal vault prolapse. The rectum um, prolapsing is called a rectocele, and the small bowel coming down is called an enterocele. And um, as far as the exam goes, different um, surgeons use different methods to examine. Uh, some, some surgeons will just kind of write a basic description of what they're seeing and how far down into the vagina each component is coming. Some surgeons don't really mention which component is prolapsing. Some surgeons use the Baden-Walker um, system where they're talking about um, the vagina has come down halfway between the, top, the apex and the introitus. 
versus it's at the introitus versus it's halfway past that versus it's full, fully out, um, basically completely everted. And then others use the POP-Q, um, which is the pelvic organ prolapse quantification method of um, measuring prolapse. And that's where we actually take measurements and we measure the anterior wall where the bladder lies. We measure the apex where either the uterus and cervix is or the top part of the vagina is. And we measure the rectum and we measure the um, opening of the vagina and the perineal body. We do all of these things. Some of them are taken while the patient is doing a valsalva maneuver or a cough maneuver. And we wanna see how far down, actually in centimeters, does the bladder come. We wanna see how far down does the cervix come? How far down is the rectum bulging? Um, either in the vagina or at the introitus or out of the vagina. We use positive measurements, zero as the introitus and negative measurements within the vagina. And then we always like to measure the opening of the vagina and the perineal body. These measurements are important because they guide us in our surgery. We know exactly how long the vagina is. We know exactly how far the cystocele or the rectocele is. We know exactly where we uh, uh, measured the cervix to be. It helps us map our surgeries out if we're using vaginal graphs for measurements. And then it also can be used postoperatively to determine an objective measure of success. So if her bladder was at plus three before and now it's at um, minus two, that's an improvement. So um, again, in general, it can really help us with our surgeries as far as outcomes go and assessing how well the repair um, was performed. So when I have patients come see me and I'm like, you should see a urogynecologist. Uh, I never know. Now I have a specific practice that I refer to, but before I just was like, eh, you, there's, th these, there's these ones around here. Sometimes when I send a patient to an office, they have an exam. Typically, is it, do you use an, a speculum to, to visualize everything? Yeah, so in my practice, and it's different with each office, that's the thing, um, I use a speculum to help me get to the apex of the vagina, and I have an actual measuring stick with centimeters marked out on it so I get the total vaginal length. Then I break the speculum in half so that I can actually hold down the rectum and then just evaluate the, the anterior wall and look at the cystocele and have her bear down and cough. That's really the best way to see Sometimes you can't even tell if it's a cystocele versus a rectocele. So you've got to separate the tissue. Then I turn that speculum over, hold it upside down, and I push the cystocele back, and then I evaluate the, rectus, the rectocele. So it depends on how everyone's doing their exam. And then I actually measure with the centimeter markings how big her in, the introitus is and the perineal body and everything. How much specific testing do you do to the, with the muscles themselves? So as far as we go, we don't do nearly as much as you do. I can definitely uh, attest to that. We do an internal examination, digital exam. We palpate the levator ani muscles. We ask them to um, contract, do a Kegel, have them do that, relax a couple of times, do it again. We'll test for any tenderness or spasm and test to see if they can do a good contraction. We will grade it. Some of us will grade it. Others will not. Um, and just see if they're actually using the right muscles or are they bringing in any accessory muscle use. But again, I think our exam is way more basic than what a pelvic floor physical therapist will do. And I think the other thing that's important to note, um, as far as training goes, 
even a general OBGYN residency, a lot of that is not focused on or taught in a residency program. It's really not until you get to your subspecialty fellowship where those things are focused on. That's interesting. Yeah. We do a lot of baby delivering and that's kind <laughs> of the, the gist. I, yeah. I really try to, and I'm trying to educate the people that follow me that, you know, your, your OB can see the, the tearing of the perineal muscles or if the tear extends to the, the anal sphincter complex, but the OB is not checking for how much your tissue is stretched from a muscle perspective internally. And they really can't at that point because everything's so stretched and swollen. So, and it's just not something that, that, that they're trained on, but we're, we're making progress at least. I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think that it's interesting having gone through the Eurogynecology Fellowship you know, what would my thoughts be had I not? Um, what would I know? What would I be doing on my exams as a generalist? Yeah. So it's, it's nice to see the difference in what I learned in my four years of OBGYN training versus what I learned in the three years afterwards. And then it's interesting to, to see, and I really like to read my physical therapy reports when they come to me and see everything that they're doing. I mean, it's a world of difference, what a physical therapist is doing versus what a surgeon is doing. And I agree with you that I think a lot of patients are misinformed and do think that their OBGYN is able to um, diagnose these things and, and, and provide them with, with a treatment plan. And I really honestly think it has to be in coordination with a physical therapist. So Dr. St. Louis, you mentioned that there were, you would offer surgery if it was affecting quality of life and they had failed all other modalities. Before mm -hmm. we jump into surgeries, can you speak to what those other modalities are and how they're staged? So depending on what they're presenting with, if it's stress incontinence, urge incontinence, mixed incontinence, overactive bladder, prolapse, um, incomplete bowel, empty and constipation, I usually start with dietary changes, behavioral modifications, fluid um, intake and, and changes of that nature. Um, I always assess for pelvic floor muscle strength, and if that's weak, pelvic floor therapy is the first thing I talk about at every new patient visit. So I kind of discuss with them what that's like. Um, I also like to try my best, which I'd love to hear your input on, in distinguishing between a patient that's already gone through an ESTIM program, say at an OBGYN's office, and trying to further elaborate with them the necessity of seeing a physical therapist and going through the actual um, manual physical therapy. Um, I also talked to them about pessaries. I talked to them about, um, for instance, poison pressa devices for stress incontinence. Um, I talked to them about um, um, medications. Then I talked to them about neurostimulation. I talked to them about surgery. So we kind of go through the gist of the pathways and I like to start with conservative, but then I also like to get a feel from my patients, what path are they interested in? Because some already know where they want to go. So then we kind of come together with what's best. So if you have somebody and they've either failed all of those modalities or they've come to you and they've said, I want surgery, I know this is something I'm going to do. Obviously, if you have different types of prolapse, you're going to do a different type of repair. So I know we're not trying to teach our audience how to do prolapse surgery, 
but could you speak to maybe like the two to three most common surgeries that you do and then what recovery from a medical standpoint looks like for the surgeries? So number one, we have two different options. We either have an abdominal procedure or we have vaginal reconstruction for prolapse. Um, the abdominal procedure is the sacrocopalpexy, which is technically considered the gold standard surgery. And it's, I do my procedure robotically. There are some surgeons that do it laparoscopically, some that do it with an open incision. Um, it does have one of the higher success rates for prolapse, um, and it does use a piece of wine mesh. Our vaginal repairs can be done a couple of ways. Um, they can involve a hysterectomy or no hysterectomy. They can involve the use of a biologic um, absorbable graft, or they can involve no graft at all. Vaginal mesh is no longer offered, and I never did vaginal mesh because I wasn't part of a training program where that was a prominent procedure. So again, it also depends on where you did your training and what surgeries you offer. Um, so vaginal mesh is no longer on the market for prolapse. It was pulled earlier this year. So we either reconstruct with the biologic graft or we reconstruct native tissue, meaning using the patient's own tissue. And like you said, if a patient has three different types of prolapse, you have to address all three parts of prolapse. Another common misconception that sometimes is done with general OBGYNs is they have prolapse and they do a hysterectomy. But if no reconstructive procedures are done, that prolapse is more than likely just going to represent pretty soon after the surgery. So if there's a vaginal reconstruction and they have a cystocele, I, will, I could do a native tissue cystocele repair. If the apex of the vagina is coming down, apical prolapse or uterovaginal prolapse, I typically do a sacrospinous ligament fixation using a biologic graft and permanent suture or delayed absor absorbable suture. And then if there's a rectocele, I'll also do a rectocele repair. So a lot of times our surgeries involve two, three, or four different procedures. How long does it take you to do those surgeries? Uh, vaginal reconstruction takes about two hours. The sacrocopalpexy usually involves the hysterectomy first because anatomically um, we have to uh, remove that in order to do our dissection and place the, the mesh. That can take anywhere from two to five hours. Do you see any kind of, um, in the recovery for women that have longer surgeries, do you feel like they have any things that they need to be more cognizant of immediately upon awakening and, the, and then within the first couple weeks versus some of the shorter surgeries, or that's not really a concern? No, it's not necessarily a concern. Um, the big difference here is whether or not we're entering your abdomen. Um, versus whether we're just staying locally in the vagina. Um, it's definitely a more involved case if we are entering the abdominal cavity. As far as the length of the procedure, um, that could a lot of times relate to how much anesthesia the patient has if they're under for two hours versus five hours. But in general, a lot of the restrictions for any reconstructive surgery uh, pretty much remain the same whether we're doing a uh, sacrocopalpexy or a vaginal reconstruction. And what are those restrictions? So the most common restrictions that we talk about with the patients really have to do with the healing uh, property and time for our sutures and our grafts that are placed and the time that we want for those sutures to obtain their maximum 
uh, strength and duration before the patient starts putting a lot of pressure or stress on the pelvic floor. So we typically tell them six to eight weeks as far as heavy lifting. We want them to avoid constipation. Um, we want them to avoid intercourse, usually only until the vaginal incision is closed and we know that there's a decreased risk of infection. So that might only be a couple weeks. Um, but in general, um, when I'm doing a robotic sacrocopal pexy and doing a dissection where you open up the space between the rectum and the vagina, placing a graft, and then placing about eight um, permanent sutures on the back wall of the vagina from the abdomen. If there's a lot of constipation or if there's a lot of heavy lifting or straining, some of those sutures could actually rip through in the immediate postoperative period. If sutures rip through, the prolapse can come back. So we want everything to incorporate into the tissue and basically form some amount of scar tissue scarring so that the strength of the repair is as at best as it could be. So if that explains our restrictions. And so do people then follow up with you at that six to eight week mark to make sure that everything has healed the way that you want it to? Yes, they do. Yep, they definitely follow up with us. Um, I typically like to follow my patients out to three months. There are rare circumstances where if the first, the first week after the surgery is done, if a patient falls, they'll say, I heard a pop, and all of a sudden everything came back down, and that can happen. So um, the restrictions are, are pretty important for us during that initial two to three month period. I bet that's not a phone call that you want. No. <laughs> <laughs> that is not. Not at all. Okay, so this makes, this is a great segue into the, what I wanna talk to you about specifically. So what are your thoughts on women that want to get back to running, weightlifting, CrossFit? I mean, given that a lot of women are told don't lift anything more than 25 pounds for the, for the rest of your life, like how do, you, how do you advise someone when there really isn't much data there to guide? That's such a good question. And I agree with you. There's not much data, you know, um, I like to counsel my patients beforehand. And a lot of times I'll see a lot of serious athletes, um, women that if they're not running six to 10 miles a day, they're not happy. Um, and they have a lot of prolapse and you know what, that's a really important part of their recovery because that has a huge psychological effect on them and their quality of life. So we usually talk about it on a case by case basis. I like my patients up and walking the first day. I want them walking around as much as possible. I will never put restrictions on their walking. I like them getting back to light exercise within the first two weeks, usually. Mm -hmm. So if they're a patient that exercises a lot, I say you can go ahead and go. I like to do my one post-operative check, make sure the incisions look good. There's no evidence of infection. Things look all right. And then I'll say, you know what? I think it's fine to do an elliptical do walking on a treadmill, feel free to walk a couple miles a day. And then I give them another couple of weeks and we get back into their, whatever their routine is, I recommend that they kind of lightly bring it back on. But they are all aware because of the counseling that based upon what they do, certain movements that are gonna put stress on the pelvic floor, like squatting, they're all aware that there's a risk that that would damage the, the, the repair. So they kind of pick and choose. And I also tell them to kind of feel their body 
and how they respond because I'll never know how they are in the gym and how they work out. But right. I mean, it's really hard and unrealistic to tell a patient that's an athlete or does CrossFit that you're not going to be able to do that forever and ever. It's just, it's just not really reasonable to think that. So we really have to have to play it by ear for each patient patient. Are there certain symptoms or complaints that you would hear from people that let's say they're three months out and they've gone back to a lifting program and now all of a sudden they're starting to feel pressure in their vaginal area again? Do you give any kind of guidance or recommendation to back off? Do you do an exam to see what's going on or how do you handle that situation? I definitely do an exam um, to see if make sure everything's in the right place and there's not any changes. Um, and at that point, that's when I postoperatively would say it might be a good idea to work with a physical therapist because they can guide you in the right exercises that are going to be good for your pelvic floor. I in no way think that I'm an expert on what exercises are great for the pelvic floor. Um, but at that point, especially for serious athletes, I think it's worth it to see a physical therapist. Um, I also highly recommend Pilates. We do have some studies on Pilates in the pelvic floor and the core strength in developing the pelvic floor, and I do highly recommend that. But in general, that's kind of when I turn things over and say you need to see a specialist, such as a physical therapist. Um, I have a history, and I think um, Dr. Connolly as well, you know, we, I, we've both gone through uh, ACL reconstructions, I believe, I've had two, and have had to go through the physical therapy to be released back into, uh, I ran, soc I ran uh, track and played soccer, through college and it's it's a crucial part you know like they say there's no orthopedic surgeon that's going to say to an athlete don't go to physical therapy so I do think it's really important for our athletes and there's there's just not a lot that I'm going to be able to do other than do an exam and make sure everything looks okay anatomically from a physical therapist standpoint we tend to get blamed for a lot so as I, I can speak for myself, like post-operatively, if I'm rehabbing someone either from a orthopedic standpoint or from a pelvic floor procedure standpoint, it's scary to be, uh, to, to be the one that is saying, hey, you can do this because at the end of the day, I didn't see the tissue. So mm -hmm. can you get, tell us a little bit about the people that you've treated have you seen a difference in overall tissue quality that you may say or think like, hey, this is not going to hold as well as this other person that their tissue yeah. is really well defined and, and healthy? Absolutely. Um, in general, any patient that's presenting with prolapse, as we know, there's there's likely some type of collagen um, deficiency or disorder. Their ligaments and muscles maybe are not as strong as the average person, or they've gone through um, more stress to the pelvic floor, such as more deliveries or, or more chronic conditions that put stress on the pelvic floor. So yes, there are patients where you may counsel them preoperatively that you may not have a high success rate. I myself um, really think that failures of prolapse surgeries, number one, you have to look at the type of prolapse surgery. A vaginal repair in the hands of the best surgeon really only has a, a 50 to 80% to success rate. So that's over a five-year period of time. I mean, a lot of our studies just show that a native tissue vaginal reconstruction is just not going to have great success over a five-year period. 
And that's not due to anything other than the fact that um, their tissue quality is already compromised. So when we're doing a repair with their own tissue, we can't really have that high of expectations. When we're adding a, a supportive structure like a graft or a, a biologic graft or a mesh, that brings your success rate up to 90% over five year um, long-term success. So first of all, I would never say that a physical therapist is the reason for a failure. It's just not the case. Um, my, my thesis and fellowship uh, was on women that have had multiple pelvic organ prolapse surgeries and trying to figure out if they have um, a genetic mutation that puts them at risk for failure. And um, it was a very small study, but we did find um, a situation like that. And hopefully in the future, we can use it to guide women to say, look, I don't think surgery is going to be for you. I think that you're at risk of failing prolapse surgery. Um, and that's just the case. And again, you can see that in the operating room. You can see that the ligaments are stretched and just very lacks and and you know that you don't have great tissue so um i think that the only thing i don't think you guys can hinder any situation i think you can only help go ahead so if you're communicating with the physical therapist or maybe not even a physical therapist just any kind of healthcare provider what do you think are good questions for other healthcare providers to come to you with what are things that you like to know as the surgeon who performed the surgery um, in terms of follow-up with your patients? We just know that um, there are some surgeons like you that are fantastic and there's a lot of good interprofessional communication, which I think ultimately only helps to have the, the most optimal outcome possible. But some healthcare professionals, physical therapists, doctors, nurses, chiropractors um, are more stay in your own lane and there isn't as much communication. And so if we consistently see that communication helps outcomes, you're clearly a leader in your field at this. So what do you like to communicate about that's helpful for your patients? Thank you for those kind words. That is, that is uh, insanely uh, flattering. <laughs> but and I'm pretty new into my career, but um, I think what I like to communicate to my patients, number one, is that rarely is anything that's going on with prolapse surgery and reconstruction an emergency. So I never like them to feel pressured. I don't like them to think that their only option is surgery. I don't like them to think that their only option is mesh. Um, and I'm the type of surgeon that likes to go through every single possible outcome so I will sit with my patients for 30 minutes, 45 minutes with a PowerPoint going over every possible benefit, every possible um, complication that could possibly arise. What would we do if we had that complication? What are the success rates? What are the failure rates? I like to give them every bit of information. And I think that knowledge is key and informed consent is key. And I think that being realistic about surgery and about outcomes is a lot of what guides the patient's post-operative success as well. Um, I also do like to uh, communicate with the other providers that I'm working with, um, whether it be their primary care physici physician or their acupuncturist or um, their physical therapist. So um, I'm not really sure what I could say to the community, but that's kind of the, the basis of my practice. I wish everybody practiced like that. Can we clone you and like bring you all over the country? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I, I feel like um, 
it's also, it's just a great find when I find uh, that physical therapist that we're like, oh my gosh, we're on the same page and let's just make sure we get there for the patient, however, uh, is, is the best way. Um, it's just a great thing. And I've run into a lot of physical therapists that say the same thing as you're saying, that a lot of times they have a hard time working with the doctors, communicating with the doctors. Um, and I just feel like I'm blessed that the training program I came from it was a huge part of what we did. I mean, patients had to go to physical therapy. So um, I, I just believe in it and I've seen the results that it can provide. I would like to incorporate it more postoperatively and I really do wish that we did have more studies on that. There's very few. Yes, there really is. Well, I'm getting my PhD, so maybe that's something I can look into. Yeah, there's very few um, on my little literature search that I did, um, but I'd love to, even if you want to brainstorm or think of ideas, I mean, more more research needs to be done. It, it's challenging. We were, Jenny and I were talking before you had come on, and I was like, Jenny, I have, I have, the idea came to me, like how I would load, load postoperatively, and I was thinking about the tissue, and it's kind of like, so the pelvic organ support is not like our ACL. It's not like any of the ligaments in our body that we think of rehabbing postoperatively with mm -hmm. the leg or the arm. Like, well, of course, gradual loading makes sense um, in trying to get out of too much that they start to have too big of an inflammatory response. But what? how do we load the similar type of tissue? The only tissue that I could really compare it to would be or at least nearby would be the abdominal wall, like how we talk about diastasis recti. Yeah. So thinking about um, the other day when I had these like 40 pound kettlebells, one in each hand, I was just practicing breathing. And I'm like, what do I do with my pelvic floor here? Am I, it, I've thought of if I, the next person that I see, I want to, gradually build in a breath program, but not just a breathing program because of just the mechanics of the pelvic floor with the diaphragm, but a loaded breathing program. And then transfer that into weightlifting because a lot of the people that I work with want to get back to that. But if I were to communicate that with a lot of people, they look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, what are you talking about? No, I think it absolutely, I think that the way you described it as in the pelvic organs are different from a bicep or a tricep or a rotator cuff or whatever you're, you're focused on um, because they're very dynamic organs and they function in different ways in what they do. You know, the bladder has to store urine and it has to release urine and the, the detrusor muscle and the urethral sphincters, I mean, just totally different concepts. And I think that uh, the way we rehab them also has to be thought of differently. Um, I wish that I knew more. And I think that even having this conversation just uh, pinpoints, you know, you start to see where you're limited in what you know and what you've learned in all of your training. Because uh, honestly, it's like, this is a field that's a little bit um, unknown for us in a lot of aspects. And how would we even study that? How do you study the, uh, the adaptations of these tissues that even before repair and after repair? So that's another good question. And I was looking at um, 
an article that I came across and with the graphs that we use, they're very hard. You can't, it's hard to design a study that tests the tensile strength, strength of, the, of the graft and how well it's going to hold any force um, over a period of time once the graft is in the patient. Yeah. So you can do this testing before, um, but you can't do it after it's in the patient. So, I mean, there really have to be some um, well thought out um, research studies around that. Because like you said, doing a breathing program and having uh, you know, a, a weight, um, what's the difference and what are we looking at? What are we testing and what kind of surgery has the patient done and how far postoperatively are they? So I think, I think that those are all great things to look into. So Dr. St. Louis, we really appreciate you taking so much time with us today. Um, just to wrap up, if people wanna reach out to you, have questions, how can people find you? Um, they can find me on Instagram at associates in urogynecology. Uh, they can find me on my website, which is associatesinurogyne.com. Uh, and they can find me on Facebook by searching for associates in urogynecology. Um, or they can give us a call. And can you give us a phone number just in yeah. case? 407-286-6190. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on tonight, Dr. St. Louis. Your, um, everything you have to say is just so valuable, and we're just so thankful that you took time with us this evening. Yes. Thank, thank you so, so much. much. I really appreciate it. Hope to speak with you guys again. We'll have to bring you on later on when uh, hopefully Jenny publishes something um, related to post-operative recovery and pelvic organ prolapse. I hope you're almost done with the PhD. Yeah. <laughs> two and a half more years, but uh, that's, that's some time to come up with some studies, right? Maybe we can Absolutely. develop a little partnership here. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Good luck. All right, ladies. All right. Have a good evening. You too. Thank you.